The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Edelman. Uh, today, we're going to continue a conversation that we started last time uh, regarding uh, accessibility issues and the legal and cultural rights to accommodations and how one can actually provide accommodations um, in real time. Last time when we talked about this issue, um, we basically laid the foundation. We discussed the concepts and we used the right words, which I will say again right now. So in place of some other terminology, which is not correct. So if you're the kind of person to write a note right at the beginning of a podcast, limber up, here's your opportunity. The correct words, the standard for providing an accommodation is, is it readily achievable or does the requested accommodation impose an undue burden? So readily achievable accommodations is what we're looking for. Undue burdens are what will keep you from providing an accommodation when someone is asking for something special on the basis of some disability or some accessibility issue. Uh, we are joined once again this time um, by our same group, um, which is really terrific because we've got the subject matter experts in the room right now. So I'm glad to introduce Betty Siegel, the director of the Office of VSA and Accessibility and the ADA 504 Compliance Officer for the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. Yay, Betty. Um, we also have Nanette O'Dell from uh, Phoenix uh, at the Talking Stick Resort Arena and Chase Field. Uh, Nanette is the Disability Services Manager and ADA Coordinator. Thanks for coming back, Nanette. Uh, we also have Danielle Hernandez uh, from Furman University. Danielle is the Director of McAllister Auditorium. And I am pleased to say that we just were rejoined by Eric Colby from the Metropolitan Opera. Eric is the Performance Manager there. So that is our group. And again, today we're basically doing special topics. So having laid of nice foundation, set forth the correct legal terms, now we're going to apply them to some situations that fairly commonly arise. And I'm going to tee up uh, the occasional question and then let our panel basically fight it out to see who wants to answer. So the first question with, with which I'm going to begin is, well, a question. So when someone who claims a disability or need for some accommodation, when they approach a venue, what questions can you or your staff ask them? I'll jump in a minute. Betty Siegel, go. Okay, this is Betty. Thanks for having us back. Um, in terms of the regulations posted for ticketing, we're allowed to ask people to attest to whether they or a member of their party are a person with a disability. That's, that's kind of it. We can ask that when they call us and request something from us. We can ask that through a click button on the website when they order tickets online. 
But that's that's what I train my staff to is we are allowed only once to ask if you or a member of your party are a person with a disability, but never, 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 what is the disability? And um, the second part of the training that we layer onto that is what you can ask people is, what is it that you need? This is Nanette, and, and really, I follow exactly along with what you're saying. Um, we'll ask, like, what are your specific seating needs if they're if they're looking at purchasing tickets? Um, we, we certainly have had situations where um, I can think of at least one time where we had somebody who emailed me <clears throat> asking for an interpreter for a concert, and I didn't think anything of it at all. I went ahead and contacted an interpreter. And they usually will ask who the client is so that they have a better understanding of what their language needs are. And I'll ask that too. But it was interesting because this particular interpreter said, that person's not deaf. And so I can't, what do I do? Do I go back and accuse him? I, so what I did was I went back in that situation. And I said, how many individuals in your party are deaf and what are their specific communication needs? And that's where I found out that the person who contacted me, she was hard of hearing. She uses an interpreter sometimes, but really her mom is the person who's deaf and she would be the main um, guest who would be interpreted for. And so again, I agree. You never ask, what is your disability? Um, but you can always ask them uh, again, are you or someone in your party who's attending the event? Um, a person with a disability um, and person who needs wheelchair accessible seating. Um, so uh, there's there's so many disabilities that are invisible. And there's a lot of reasons why a person might need wheelchair accessible seating. And so one of the things with that is making sure we also let them know that we have other seating options that are what we call limited mobility seating. And they maybe require only one step up or down. Because there's a lot of people who might need that, especially with a pre-ADA building. The number of actual wheelchair accessible seats that we have can be limited at times. Uh, let me open this to Danielle Hernandez at Furman and Eric Colby at uh, Lincoln Center. Have you guys had people who've kind of pushed the envelope on this issue when they ask for an accommodation? This is Danielle. We normally don't have people ask us ahead of time. It's more of um, they arrive and we have to find an accommodation for them or some sort of reasonable thing that works for them and their needs. In general, we have what Nanette described in terms of easier access places. And sometimes the people purchasing those tickets don't understand what that means. They're seated in a regular seat. So if they have a walker or something like that, then there is the additional uh, figuring out what to do with their different uh, devices or other other items like that. All right. So that Danielle, sounds like you have it pretty easy. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> in this respect, well, sometimes when they come in, there are people who don't comfortably fit in a regular size chair who have purchased those same tickets. And the fact that it is a fixed seat is something of an issue. Uh, so we will do our best to accommodate them in another section, but sometimes that is a little bit uh, delicate in terms of how we handle those. Let's go to the next question on my list. This is not in any particular order other than the order in which people pose these questions to me. And I think, I don't know the answer, but there must be one. So this question involves service animals, um, about which I used to hear lots of laughter, people talking about like service rodents and things like that. So. <laughs> 
I assume that there is law that speaks to this and probably has a finite list of actual legally appropriate service animals that one can claim for admission into a private event. Is there? Definitely. Uh, where is that, what past, is that list? This, this, is, this is the net uh, with Sons and Diamondbacks. And in the past, it was really any animal. And uh, fortunately, the Department of Justice changed the regulations in effective 2012. And it is now dogs and it could be miniature horses or, or ponies. Um, it, again, fair housing is different. There's a lot of other things. Uh, the airlines, I know it's very different, although I think they're cracking down a bit. But really, in venues like what we're speaking of, we are talking about dogs, and that can mean any kind of dog, any size dog. So yes, technically, it could be a large Great Dane, and it could be a teacup poodle. <clears throat> you can't make an assumption about what that dog does and does not do, because there's a lot of things that they could do. Um, and then miniature horses, and people wonder why in the world you would have a miniature horse, because think of the cleanup alone, my goodness. <clears throat> but the truth is, is that service dogs, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars to really train a service dog. And so if you're looking at a, a, a large size service dog, a lot of times, whether it's a golden lab, golden retriever, something to that effect, <clears throat> um, larger dogs don't tend to live as long as smaller dogs, for example. And so you could put tens of thousands of dollars into training a service dog and the lifespan of that dog in terms of real usefulness to do its job may not be more than eight years, maybe. But if it was a horse, for example, a miniature horse, they're going to live much, much longer. They can definitely provide stability for a person trying to walk. They can be trained to pick things up. There's a lot of things they can do. Um, I'm going to say, fortunately, we don't see a whole lot of miniature horses in our venues. We've only had one in the eight years that I've been here. <clears throat> and um, um, but, but technically, you can. Now, we did have someone try to come in with a snake. Um, wrapped as his belt. And when asked the question, he, of course, he was trying to say that the snake helped hold up his pants, which <laughs> was um, quite comical. And we did not allow him or the snake in the building. Um, but people have certainly tried things like that. Um, I will say that I am convinced that we sometimes allow people in with fake service dogs. Um, we know the questions to ask. We do ask the questions. People have gotten smarter about how to answer them but I would still rather allow in a fake service dog than ever to deny a real service dog. And that's what we train our staff on. So yeah. what are those questions? Yeah, so what are those questions? You Two piqued questions. my interest. Two questions. So the first one is, is this a service animal required because of a disability? <clears throat> and a person says yes or no, and then you watch to see if their nose grows or if their pants catch on fire. <laughs> uh, the second question is um, what specific service or task is the dog trained to, and you say dog, because it's mostly a dog. What specific service or task is the dog trained to perform? And so you might get people saying things like, well, I'm diabetic. And you go, no, 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 wait a second. I don't need you to disclose your disability, really. I just need to know what specific service or task your dog is trained to perform. They might become argumentative. I told you I'm diabetic. Do you want to see my insulin pump? No, it's okay. I just wanted to know what specific service or task the dog is trained to perform. And you're really looking for that. What verb? Like what action does the dog do? So someone says, well, they comfort me. Well, what does that mean? What is the action there? So just the fact that my dog is alive makes me feel better. It comforts me. <clears throat> but what is my dog doing? So that's where it gets pretty specific. The, the question though becomes is, is how much do you really want to grill this person? So I can tell you, uh, we see this a lot, for example, D-backs games, summertime. It's really hot. People are waiting outside. You have someone coming in with a service dog that helps them with their anxiety. 
okay? But they can't answer the question specifically. Well, the more we press, the more a person, whether they experience anxiety or not, is going to experience some degree of anxiety. And the line of people outside that are in the heat waiting to come in, they're also now experiencing some anxiety. And so you really kind of have to weigh it and say, okay, how much are we going to push this? And then there's the embarrassment factor. We're doing this in front of a whole bunch of other people potentially. So you really have to take a look at those different things, ask the questions, but also we give the benefit of the doubt and um, we usually always let them in. And I don't want to encourage people to be deceptive by any means, but that's the way it is. And then let me throw in, this is Betty, that um, that's definitely the federal regulations that the U.S. Department of Justice has put out there. That may be for places of public accommodation under Title III of the ADA. You want to also remind folks that they need to factor in whether their state or local jurisdictions provide um, better or broader protections for people with disabilities, and what is the definition of a animal there. And in addition, there is a movement now amongst many states to um, implement, to make it actually uh, almost a criminal act to fake a service animal. And so there are fines that could be um, incurred by faking your animal into being a service animal. We actually so, have that in Arizona. Uh, Arizona's passed that. And it's interesting because I had several staff ask me, well, what do we do now? Nothing's changed. You're still going to ask the questions. Nothing's changed at all. Um, and I, so it didn't really change a whole lot on our side. Right, because you did it from a customer service perspective. But the reason why the states are moving towards these laws is because there's some argument to be made on the part of people with disabilities with legitimate service animals that untrained animals actually create um, a danger to their trained dogs and there can so, be yeah the states are kind of trying to crack down a little bit on it but dog or miniature horse and that seems pretty simple to me in the script that you train your staff to is like that said rather simple because we can ask, is it required because of a disability? And we can ask what task or work is your dog trained to perform? So to follow up on that, first of all, I'm excited that I might get to see a miniature horse at work. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Um, secondly, just to clarify, so is an emotional support animal a service animal? No. That was Betty, you were pretty emphatic. Is that is that black letter law? Yeah. I mean, the service dog is very specifically defined as a dog, like Lina said, who is trained to do a task or work. An, emer an emotional support animal is not trained. They provide emotional support by being a dog. So if someone comes, Betty, because we, we have this happen, of course. Right. When someone comes to us and they say emotional support dog, we, we will still ask the question, but what's what specific service or task? Does your dog provide a specific service or task? Right. <clears throat> and and then kind of wait to see the answer. Sure. Because, because the truth is, is they might call it an emotional support dog, but the truth is the person might experience anxiety and they need the emotional support dog to, let's say when they start to get anxious, they nudge their head up to them, they lick them, they put their paw on them, those types of actions. So it's, it's a sticky one, 
And again, we let them in. It's yeah, which was great. I mean, the truth of the matter is we probably let them in here at the Kennedy Center too. Um, but the the regulations actually talk about trained to do that. So I happen to have a small seven pound Maltese holding him and cuddling him and he licks me on the nose, makes me feel better. I feel less anxiety in that situation, but he was not trained to do any of those things. And it is the training of a task or job that makes it fall within the definition put out by the U.S. Department of Justice of a service animal. Again, I would look back to good customer service. You can always provide uh, broader protections or more access to people. In other words, you're not prohibited from allowing in an emotional support animal. You're just prohibited from not allowing in the service dog. Right. So it's, it's, it's a choice I think that every venue has to make on uh, based on what their philosophy is. One important thing to keep in mind also is to uh, check with your local uh, office on ADA, the mayor's office on disability, as while there are uh, federal, um, there's also state and local guidelines and ordinances to look at. So while it may be federal uh, law, should I say, Steve, I'll ask the lawyer that the fact is the local municipality uh, may not choose to follow that if they have other uh, standing policies regarding, and especially if you're in a municipal building, uh, check to see that uh, the guidelines and ordinances are actually being used in that location. Yeah, that's always good advice because the federal statute issued by the U.S. Department of Justice is the baseline. There may also be state or local rules that supplement that so for people who, like Eric and Danielle, are house managers, you want to know what is the law that applies for your particular venue, because ultimately, you don't care what applies elsewhere, you care what applies at your house. So this is primarily true for the emotional support animals, and as far as what questions you can ask, at some point, until it, the support animal uh, in the unlikely event, poses an actual threat to another audience member or in some way inhibits your ability to, to do business, uh, it's probably not worth it to uh, get into a discussion about it. If they say it's an emotional support animal and is providing them with that comfort, if it's not an issue with anybody else, best to let it go. Yeah. And, and from a lawyer's standpoint, I will say that there are some battles not worth fighting. You know, you may be technically right if you gather enough evidence, but as Nanette, you know, gave us a wonderful hypothetical here in Phoenix, it's a thousand degrees and you don't want to have a lengthy discussion about whether an animal is providing a particular service or task if there's a big line of sweating patrons getting pissed off behind. You know, that's just not a good scenario. It's not worth dying on that particular hill. So... You know, there throughout this discussion, you know, podcast listeners, there is the right legal answer. And then there's going to be practical considerations that you should build into your analysis, because ultimately what we're trying to do here is provide the best service, the best experience for people who would like to participate in whatever is being offered at you know this particular venue. Um, 
let's pivot to another of the fun questions that I am often asked, which again, I don't know the answer to. So turn it over to our experts. Does a venue need to provide a wheelchair? So somebody has some kind of mobility issue, they manage to get to the front doors of the building, and then they say, it's hard for me to get around. What, if anything, are they entitled to? I'll jump in again. This is Betty. Um, you know, the, the, at least under the Americans with Disabilities Act, it specifically precludes a requirement that the venue provide personal devices. So I do not have to provide you with a wheelchair. That's a personal device. I don't have to provide you with your own personal hearing aid, although I do have to provide assistive listening devices. Um, so I'm not required to do that, but I'm on the net side on this one. This is where customer service really does come in. And I don't see why we would choose not to provide something like a wheelchair because our buildings are big and the, it's, um, it is a barrier for many uh, people coming if, if they can't physically get from point A to point B. And providing them with a wheelchair is really simple to do. Training my staff to assist that person in using that loaner wheelchair is also really simple to do and very low cost. And it keeps my audience longer. And the longer I keep my audience, the more tickets they buy, the more money goes into the bank. So for me, loaning wheelchairs is a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to do that. And of course, we're going to assist people getting around the venue. So what exactly do you train your staff specifically to do with the loaner wheelchair? Well, we train our staff not to transfer people. So in other words, if the individual needs the level of support that requires my staff to actually pick them up and move them from one chair to another. That's a no. We don't do that. Um, we do train the staff to uh, put the brakes on the wheelchair, brakes on and off, how to open and close the wheelchair, how to safely push someone around the building. Do you allow family members to assist with moving people around the building or is it only staff? No, definitely. If they have a companion or family member who wants to help them, they are more than welcome. So this is the net. So Betty, you guys actually loan out the wheelchair. You don't necessarily, you don't, it's different than what we do is we provide the wheelchair escort assistant. So we don't loan them the chair for the evening or for the event. We will take them to their seating area and then we will come back and pick them up when they're ready to leave. <clears throat> but we don't actually loan them the chair. In some cases, they've asked about borrowing one or renting one, and we have a fair place fairly close by that we encourage them to look into, but right. we keep our wheelchairs. We, we have a certain number, and I mean, there could be times where we might have 10 wheelchairs, but we have 40 wheelchair requests, and so we have staff that are trained to take them back and forth. Um, what we also make sure they know is that um, we can't take them back and forth to the bathroom. So they come in and say, you know what, it's the third quarter, but I really have to go to the bathroom. Can you come and get me? We can't do that. So we let them know from the very beginning that we can't take them back and forth. Um, and we also make sure they know that, you know, whereas people will kind of trickle in before an event, when an event is over, everyone wants to leave right now. But we have 40 wheelchair requests and we only have 10 wheelchairs. So it's going to take time. So we, we actually encourage, we actually train the guests themselves on what to expect in terms of us coming back to pick them up. Um, 
and um, and, and in some cases, it it you know people have to wait. If we have an event where everybody's on the floor, where people are on the floor, we try to go pick up the people on the floor first because we realize that they need to start tearing down the floor pretty quickly after an event. We want to get everybody kind of out of the way. So it's it's an interesting process. But we're again, like I agree with you. We're not required to do that. It's something we choose to do because we want to have our guests to have a better experience. Absolutely. And, you know, every venue is going to make a decision based on what works for that venue. We have the luxury of having a lot more wheelchairs and we never run out. That's great. Um, And so we do think of it as you've been loaned this wheelchair. It is yours for the evening. You're not allowed to take it and go cruise in the mall. But while you're on property, you can use it to get to the restaurant. You can use it to get to the restroom. We also prohibit our staff from accompanying patrons into the bathroom. Yes. We'll push the person to the threshold in the wheelchair, but we won't go in with them. Um, and, the, you know, it draws us to what this what we started talking about, which was emergency egress here. From my perspective, I actually want the wheelchair to stay with the person as much as possible. Um, maybe they can't keep it at their seat, but it's going to be right outside the closest egress door. Because if there's an emergency, I want to be able to get that person out as quickly uh, as I possibly can without having to wait to go back get a chair, bring one person, go back get a chair, bring one person. Right. But we do, we do. I think your approach for the size of your venue makes a lot of sense. And then our approach is customized to our situation. Danielle, so you wanted to ask. Yeah, that was exactly my question, especially for you, Nanette, is what's your procedure then for getting people out in the case of an evacuation to have the locations of those people teed up and people specifically assigned to go get them? And you base it on geography, so to speak, you get these people out first and then the next? Well, we, we do know the location of everybody who we've we've taken in, for example. Um, um, we, we encourage people as much as possible. People will call me and say, well, I use a wheelchair sometimes, but I'm really not sure about bringing my wheelchair to the event. I say, please bring your wheelchair or bring your walker or scooter, whatever it is, um, because we want them to be able to keep their mobility device with them. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast that we have um, some different areas that we've actually made modifications to the space so that people who say, I really want to sit in a standard chair, they can do so and they can put their wheelchair, walker, scooter, canes, crutches behind them in this space that does not block egress from anyone else. And so we, we really want to consider that as much as possible. But yes, we have 40 people who have relied on us to bring them in. Then we know where they are. We're going to go get them and I, the, the chances of us being able to get everybody, uh, it's hard to say that we, we hope we never have to face that one. And for the other venues, um, is it similar if, if their chair is nearby, but at an egress, is somebody tasked with specifically bringing it to them? Or is that the responsibility of one of their family members? And do you do the same thing with, with walkers? or scooters where they're not, our farm marshal won't let us have those things in the aisles. So if we have a sold out show, those things are removed at a short distance from the patron themselves. Is, is that something that people are tasked with specifically? In our case, yes. Well, 
And just really quickly, and, then Eric speak. I can see you, Eric. I'm gonna let you speak in a minute. Um, <laughs> just to finish, yeah. I mean, I'm with Nanette. I wish every venue was carefully designed to allow someone to transfer yet still keep their mobility device. That would be the ideal situation. So where possible, we allow people to keep their mobility devices. We're lucky because different venues, different theaters in this building have different seating configurations. If I can leave their mobility device with them, I do. If we have to take the mobility device and store it, as I said, outside the nearest egress door, then there's an usher that's tasked with bringing it back to them. I'm just going to echo what we've already heard in that uh, it's here. It's it's a little of both in that uh, we may not have uh, enough wheelchairs for everybody. We certainly don't. It, we don't do loaners. If somebody shows up and has a sudden need, we have the great resource of a safety team here who is trained to assist and even transfer. However, uh, much like as Nanette mentioned, it's the sort of thing where we can get you to your seat and we will get you out. We keep track of where everybody is. Um, but a personalized service of visiting to the bar or the bathroom at intermission is not something that we can provide just due to supply and demand numbers. Um, one of the things that was brought up here is the plan for getting everybody out once you've gotten them in and if you've provided them with assistance. Yeah, we want to keep their mobility devices, and if it's something that we've provided, as close as possible, but it's very rarely inside the auditorium. It's usually just outside in a location where we know where it is, they know where it is, and ideally, if they do have a personal care uh, attendant, we want to do everything we can to accommodate them, and while it may not be possible for them to sit in the auditorium, we will provide a space for them because on the get-out, it's going to be a whole lot easier. Uh, if somebody is with them and can care for them. So this is segueing to something that I have teed up in my list of questions, which has to do with shelter in place and emergency evacuations. So let's just continue with this line of thought. So we have somebody who has a mobility impairment. It sounds like we have two completely different solutions to that. So Betty has a, you know, an armada of wheelchairs and you know, essentially everybody at the Kennedy center gets their own. Um, Nanette does not have an armada of wheelchairs, but you have attendants who are trained to help people and you use the limited number of wheelchairs that you have available. Um, at Furman and at the Metropolitan Opera, it sounds like there's, you know, some variation on those two themes. So, in the scenario where there is an emergency evacuation, is there some legal right to be moved to shelter in place? And if so, what about people who are working at outdoor events, whether it's, you know, a Greenfields festival or just, you know, some show that's primarily outdoors? What rights do people have? Wow, you've stumped me on that one. Well, Betty, you're you're in the luxurious position of having a fixed building, you know, brick and mortar. So good for you. Nanette, you want to take this one? Nanette, and, and I'm, I'm thankful that we have not had this happen. I, it, that I recall more than I think once or twice, maybe, in the eight years I've been here. And I could certainly find out more. But I believe at the, uh, was it, I think it was the ballpark where there was, um, you know, the Haboobs, 
the, those big weird dust storms that come in. In right. fact, I think I have a bobblehead haboob behind me somewhere. Um, <laughs> but there was a situation once where there was really significant wind and they just encouraged everybody to stay in. The, the fortunate part is, of course, we have a roof that opens, which means it also closes. Um, and if we did have to shelter in place, I'm really thankful that we have a pretty big place. There would be a lot of food. There's bathroom facilities. There's even showers. I mean, if we had to, we could. And I, I don't know what the details are in terms of, you know, if this would, um, again, how long? I don't know. Fortunately, this was uh, a fairly short period of time where we had to do this. But it worked and it kept people safe. Um, if they had left during that uh, during that storm, it would have been unfortunate. Eric, I think you wanted to jump in on this one. Uh, no, it was just a quick kibitz. You know, when we now refer to festivals as greenfield festivals and for all the festivals that I've worked by the end of the day, the field is never green. And by day two, it's brown and just dirt, but we can edit that part out later. Yeah. Thank you for that comment. I so, know, it, Steve, this is the, wouldn't, wouldn't the better question be not so much whether you have a right to actually being provided with shelter and space place. Wouldn't the question be that you have a right to be in a venue where, um, the venue has planned for what they should do in the case of a variety of different emergency situations, whether it's weather or active shooter or fire. Whatever is reasonable, you mean? Well, reasonably foreseeable. Good for you, Danielle. <laughs> yes. So every self-respecting venue that wants to avoid legal liability ought to have an emergency action plan, which includes an evacuation plan for its reasonably foreseeable invitees and also the staff who are working there. Betty, I think I agree with you. Your, your rephrase question is the right one. What should a venue have in place? So, Nanette, let me start with you because it sounds like your solution for mobility impaired patrons is labor intensive. You have attendance because you don't have Betty's armada of wheelchairs. How do you recommend that people deal with a finite number of attendants helping a larger number of patrons in the event of an unscheduled evacuation? One of the things that I'm glad that we have here at Chase is we do have ramps to completely exit the building if needed. Um, not all venues have that. Um, we have ramps that um, you, you would not wanna skateboard down them. Uh, well, maybe some people would. But uh, they are legal, but again, they're, they're definitely ramps that go all the way down. So one of the things um, that I've encouraged staff to do is that if there was an emergency and a person did not have their mobility device with them, um, many of the seats that we have in the wheelchair accessible seating areas are double tandems. Um, so they're fixed seats, but they can be unbolted easily at the bottom. So I've truly said, and I would love to hear your opinion on this, but I've truly said, if there was an emergency, someone could not, didn't have their mobility device, I would, we would quickly unbolt just two bolts at each side and then take the tandem down backwards. You don't want to take it frontwards, take it down backwards. You're probably going to get people that are going to be willing to assist you in taking that down. But in a sense, that takes people who cannot walk or can not walk very quickly they're in a sense in sort of a pseudo wheelchair and they're brought down backwards down the ramps. So that's what I've said. Uh, 
that would be my recommendation at Chase Field anyways. Anyone else want to I think an important key point there is you have what I refer to as an in-the-meantime solution. So good job. Let me tee up one other question that was actually something that Nanette and I were talking about before we got on today's podcast. Um, So this is another, I guess, concert scenario type question. So in the situation where there is a general admission floor without chairs, um, and again, you have somebody who is in a wheelchair or has a walker or something like that, um, does the venue need to provide a separate seating area? Um, What sort of arrangements does the venue have to provide? Part one. And if there's not a bright line rule for what the venue has to provide, is there some good solution which is consistent with legal requirements that actually is a good customer service solution as well? I'm curious as to what everybody else says before. <laughs> does anybody else? Uh, I think Betty said that she does. They, they have general admission, but they don't have general admission standing room only. Right. We generally don't, although we're moving more to that as we create a new venue. I mean, we're literally opening a new building in September. And I think the question of general admission without chairs is going to start coming up more and more. My advice to people, so I'll give you a starting place, um, is that although it is unclear because essentially the regulations and the law are silent on issues around general admission, that I want to base any decision that I make on two things. One is the spirit of the law and the fact that I'm still, whether it's uh, specified in the regulations or not, I still cannot discriminate against a person with a disability on the basis of their disability. And number two, if I have to then in, in the absence of direction from the U.S. Department of Justice, um, create my own policy or procedure, then definitely what I want to do is extrapolate from the existing ticketing regulations for seated venues to the GA situation, which means that I'm going to at least be sure that I have the a number of seats that is equivalent to those required in a seated environment. I'm going to manage those seats the same way that I would manage the seats in a seated environment. Um, that's how we tend to move here, how I would encourage people to move because the worst thing, and Steve might have better input on this, is standing in front of a judge and saying, I don't know, Your Honor, I just made stuff up. (laughs) Whereas if I extrapolate from the existing ticket regulations, the GA situation, I think I have a much better defense. Um, One of the reasons why this question came up was, um, as we got to talking before the podcast, I was recently asked by another venue Um, that also does a lot of GA standing room only, the question was asked was, do we have to allow wheelchair users to a standing room only? And it was just a gigantic yes, of course. This is a civil rights law, absolutely. But their, their, their comeback was, but they could get hurt. And my theory is it's equal access to pain. If you go down and you're involved in a mosh pit and you get hurt, that happens to people with disabilities and without disabilities. The other question then was, well, other people could get hurt. Yes, this is true also. You get involved in something like that, that could happen. But that was really one of the questions. And then what they asked was, well, could you put them in like um, a barricaded area? 
so a barricaded area that would sort of protect them and protect others. But how does that feel on their part? Does it feel like I got an advantage or does it feel like you've put me in a cage? And then the next question becomes, well, do you put this barricade up in the front? In which case, some people, some people would say, I don't care if it's a barricade. You put me up front. Thank you very much. Or do you put it way in the back? In which case, people would say, you put me in a barricade and I'm in the back. So then what's the option? Um, there are I mean, people that who, You're killing us right now. Are there answers to any of these oh, questions? I know. I know. Both. <laughs> Both the front and the back? Uh, Ideally, yes. Uh, you know, it's if you can have especially a raised accessible platform towards the front, because more and more we're seeing VIP areas that can do this, proving that yes, you can, and yes, have one in the back. If you, can. I mean, when you design your site and it's just a big open space, uh, your best bet is to have your bases covered by doing both. Now, I know that's not possible everywhere, but. It's certainly something that, if readily achievable, is worth doing. I, Eric, and I want you to send me pictures of any design that you have like that, because that's where we sometimes face some struggles, is because the shows themselves sometimes can dictate. You know, they obviously they want as many people as possible. They want, um, you know, you create a large barricade area, you've now lowered your footprint. Your your footprint is lessened to the number of standing patrons. So it can definitely be a challenge. Um, but I love the idea of having both because the truth is, is that if you say, well, it's first come first serve. So if I come in and I'm three fourths the way back, I'm three fourths the way back. That's all there is to it. People would argue and say, wait a second, you, they were three fourths the way back and you brought them all the way to the front. That's an unfair advantage. So it, it goes back and forth. Danielle, please. So to play devil's advocate, at some point, if we're adding platforms and, and enclosed areas to a already risky situation, are we adding hazards to the, to the setup? Are we adding trip hazards? And are we squishing capacity for the other people that are going to end up with a basically a compression injury? Uh, because we've limited the space and I doubt anyone's going to say, well, we should just let fewer people in. That never seems to be anyone else's solution. Um, I, I don't know that adding two separate places is always feasible. I guess if you've got infinite space and infinite resources, that's lovely. <laughs> I mean, um, we should all work at the Metropolitan Opera. You just you just change the, the area on the drawing that says VIP, cross it out and put and cross yeah. and put there you go. Look, you know, the point here is that what Eric's saying is that he's really looking at the spirit and intent of the law. All the ticketing regulations are about choice, right? We want to give people options and choices, options in terms of location, options and choices in terms of price. So creating two, even three spaces that's the spirit of the law i think that's a really defensible position as for the venue or the artist declaring or the performer whatever the event is who gets to decide the number of seats available um you have a contract you enter into a binding agreement with those entities somebody is in some sort of agreement and you need to specify in there that this that your venue complies with the americans with disabilities in black and white law as well as in spirit and thus the capacity is x 
it's not Y, X with those locations incorporated. And, the, and then as far as I'm considered, you're done. Um, I, I get to set the venue capacity. If you don't want to perform there because I knocked 30 seats out of capacity, then go perform down the street. Um, this is our capacity. These are our, these are our policies for abiding by the spirit and the letter of the law. And that means creating spaces for people with disabilities to participate at a level that is equal to or equitable with other people's participation. Um, if you are building platforms that are unsafe, that's a different issue. Don't do that. Whatever you do, make it safe. And I think that leads us to an excellent place uh, for today. It, I think it's an excellent place because it allows me once again to recite the legal mantra, which applies in almost every circumstance, how convenient, which is everyone has a common law duty. See, podcast listeners, you should be ready to say this with me now with feeling. Everyone has a common law duty to behave as a reasonable person under their circumstances. And so here during this podcast, we've taken, you know, accessibility special topics. And lo and behold, with I think one or maybe two exceptions, everything is subject to discretion based on the circumstances of the particular person, how they're explaining their situation, the physical environment. There are some black letter rules, but very few, even in this statutorily created environment. Still, at the end of the day, we all have to behave reasonably, and the root of behaving reasonably under the circumstances is having a reason, preferably a good reason. So, <laughs> you know, during this particular podcast, we touched on some of the fabulous hot button issues and I encourage you, if you have still further questions, dear podcast listeners, shoot us an email. Um, we have the subject matter expertise here, and that's a wonderful thing. And doubtless, we could do lots more podcasts. And really, what you should do if you have specific questions is contact one of the experts and get answers to your questions. Um, you know, we're trying to lay foundation, give you a taste, give you a sense of the environment in which these questions get answered. But, you know, there are not so many answers and always more questions. And that's what gives us our jobs. And that's what allows us to think through these interesting, sticky issues, um, which is what makes work in this field worthwhile. So with that as sort of our, our happy coda. I will say thank you to Betty Siegel from the Kennedy Center, Nanette O'Dell from Talking Stick Resort Arena and Chase Field, Danielle Hernandez from Furman University, and Eric Colby from the Metropolitan Opera. I will remind everyone to check out the Event Safety Alliance website. We have lots of cool things going on, including signing up for our Event Safety Summit in November. Uh, the Canadian Event Safety Alliance is putting on its Severe Weather Summit uh, in uh, Ontario in October. We have all sorts of interesting activities. Sign up, join us. 
we're safety geeks, but there's a lot of stuff that's cool about this. Um, thank you, as always, to Jacob Warwick, who makes us sound good, keeps the lights on. Um, and I am Steve Edelman. Be safe out there. Thanks very much. Thanks.